0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. I want you to imagine for just a second that you and your family or a Ukrainian family. Maybe in the city of of Donetsk, a city that has been occupied for months and months by Russian forces. And then one evening, as your family is, is gathering together from the day, you begin to hear mortar shells overhead. And so your family decides to head down into the basement. The city seems to be in the middle of a war zone You can hear things around you. And so you gather in your basement for safety. And then something happens. All of a sudden, dad gets a glint in his eye and starts smiling. He pulls out a little plug-in induction heater. He grabs the cast iron and starts to heat the cast iron pan up. Mom catches on. And mom goes up, sneaks up to the fridge, and pulls down the steaks, the steaks you've been saving for a special occasion. She heads back down to the basement. She finds the wine that you guys have been keeping, the good wine. Not the, stuff that, not the stuff that you serve to friends, not the stuff that, like, you know, at the end of the night. No, no, no. The good stuff, the stuff that you've been holding on to, waiting for just the right moment. And all of a sudden, dad whips up some beautiful ribeyes. Mom pours out glasses of wine for everybody around the table, and then you sit down to feast with the background noises of rockets and bullets, with the rumble of tanks over your head. And as you're about to dig in, Dad raises his glass. He smiles around to everybody as he makes eye contact, and he says, To freedom. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful moment that would be for a family. Except there's there's just one thing wrong with this picture. Did you catch it? There is something strange about this story. They're celebrating before the victory is won. They're celebrating when they don't truly know the outcome of of what's going to happen. Sure, they may have some ideas. They may be encouraged by Ukrainian forces and Russian retreats and all, but but they don't know. This is not something we do. I mean, think about it. Do you go out for the big fancy meal before or after you get the promotion? After. Do, Do you buy the car or the house before or after you make the big sale? after. Yes. We even have a phrase for this, don't we? Don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's wise. That's not, that's not a bad thing. You probably shouldn't buy the big car before you actually sign the new contract. You know, that's not a great idea. And maybe, Whether we decide not to do things and call it wisdom, which it probably is, or maybe it's because we're a little stitious, and we don't want to jinx it, whatever the case may be, it's a good thing that we don't count our chickens before they hatch. It could lead to serious trouble if they do. Now, look, I'm, I'm not here to critique the wisdom of that. It's a good thing. But what I do want to point out is that God's way of doing things is drastically different than this. Because as we read through the story of Passover today, they're going to be celebrating victory, celebrating redemption before it happens. This is the pattern that happens over and over in Scripture. The people of God are told to celebrate victory, to celebrate redemption before it happens. That's what faith is. God calls us to have faith in advance of what is going to happen. That's what faith is. Faith looks into the future and calls that future reality. That thing that we hope and believe will happen, we live and base our lives on. Hope is what comes as we are grounded in faith in what God has promised. So we're gonna look at the story of Passover this morning. We're gonna look at Exodus 12 and it's gonna play out exactly how God said it was all the way back to the burning bush. God has again and again sort of repeated, hey, here's how this is gonna go. Pharaoh's gonna say, no, I'm gonna send plagues. He's gonna say no again. And then there's gonna be a big one and it's gonna be rough. And then you're gonna all get to leave. God lays this out in advance. But the beautiful thing, about this passage, the beautiful thing about the story of Passover and the story of the unleavened bread feast is that it happens before they leave Egypt. It happens in advance of their redemption. They exercise faith based on the promises of God. So if you're able, I'd invite you to please stand. Um, As I read Exodus chapter 12, the words will be on the screen behind me, or you can follow along if you've got a copy of the Bible on your phone or a hard copy in your hands. I'm going to be reading Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he is to go to his nearest neighbor and shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. With its head and legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. And this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the house where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them, go, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the passover lamb take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin a basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin basin excuse me none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning for the lord will pass through to strike the egyptians You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out from the land in haste. And they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened in their kneading bowls, being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the peoples of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, the Lord Uh, Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native to the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host." City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. As we come to this 10th plague, this plague on the firstborn, God gives Moses pretty meticulous instructions on what's about to happen. Pretty meticulous instructions on how they should prepare for this feast called Passover. In fact, God says that this is so meaningful, this is so important, that I want you to reorder your calendar. Whatever the first month of the year was in your mind, from now on, the month of Nisan, not a joke, that really is what the month that Passover falls in is called, uh, the month of Nisan will be the first month of the year. And he reorders time around this because of how significant this moment will be for the Hebrew people. And even more than that, as they anticipate this 10th plague, they're preparing something that's going to be the most devastating of all. The destroyer, which is this term that, that appears only here and a couple other places in the Old Testament, but it seems to be God's coming in judgment. The destroyer is going to come to the land of Egypt. And when the destroyer comes, he's going to kill the firstborn in every house. But there are instructions. There are ways that this can be avoided. They are to, they, they're going to go select a lamb or a goat out of their herds. It's got to be one years old. And then it's got to be without spot and blemish. And after they've selected this goat or lamb, they're going to kill it and spread its blood on their doorpost and on the crossbeam. The the Bible calls it a lentil, but I don't know, you know, I I don't know. I guess that's a lentil. It's clearly the lentil, but that's an odd kind of word to think about. But that's what they're going to do. They're going to kill this lamb and paint the blood on their doorpost. As we read through this, I think you probably picked up on the deliberateness and slowness of this whole process. They're supposed to pick their lamb out on the 10th, but they don't have to kill the lamb until the 14th. And not only that, but they're supposed to kind of do the calculations that you and I all do around holidays, right? In our family, around every holiday, there's always a big question about how much meat do we need? How many people are coming? how big of, Do we need one roast or two roasts? Will one beef wellington be okay, or do we need three? In my family, we call this the meat crises. They're supposed to work out the issues of the meat crises in advance. If your family is not big enough that a lamb is going to, you're going to have tons of leftover lamb, that's okay. Get with your neighbor, and maybe you guys split a lamb. However you do it, it's deliberate, it's slow, and it's intentional. And as the people of Israel follow these plans, they're following something that is measured and specific. God gave them a path to redemption. He gave them a path to freedom, but he gave it on his terms and not theirs. God lays out a way that the destroyer would not enter their homes, but he lays it out in such a way that it is clear that they have to follow what he says, And not just say, hey, we're going to do some things. We're going to worship that night. We're going to have a nice little prayer service. No. If you want the destroyer to pass over you, here's how you kill the lamb. Here's what you do with its blood. Here's how you eat it. What's interesting is last week we talked about the first nine plagues. There were frogs. There was the Nile turning to blood. There were lice and locusts. It was a great time. But one of the things that we saw as we went through those first nine plagues is that God was clearly able to distinguish the people of Israel from the people of Egypt. Again and again and again, throughout these plagues, there would be boils on the livestock of the people of Egypt, but not on the people of Israel. God was able to distinguish. God knew whose cows were whose cows and whose sheep were whose sheep and what houses belonged to the Egyptians and what ones belonged to the Israelites which leads to a question, right? If God could distinguish between the Israelites and the Egyptians already, why is it that they needed to paint their doorpost? Why is it that they needed to go through all of this sort of sacrificial stuff for this Passover? It's because Israel didn't just need freedom. They needed redemption as well. They didn't just need to be freed out of Pharaoh's grasp, but they needed to be redeemed and rescued and brought back to God as well. God is going to free the people of Israel, but he wants them to be a holy people sent to serve him. He wants them to be a people whose sins are paid for. And so in the story of Exodus, it's very clear that the Egyptians are the bad guys. If you've been with us so far, you have seen this. The Egyptians are the bad guys in the book of Exodus, at least for the first half. It's pretty obvious. They're enslaving and oppressing another people. Not good. They refuse to listen to the one true God. Not okay. And even when God visits the land with plague after plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Egypt is an evil empire, and God is bringing justice on that evil empire. But just because Israel's the good guy in the story, just because Israel are the people that we're rooting for, the people that we want to see ourselves as, the metaphor that we want to find ourselves in, just because that's who Israel is, doesn't mean that they're innocent. Just because you're the good guy in the story, doesn't mean you're without flaws. As we continue to trace the story of Exodus, as the people of Israel leave the land the word that is used to describe the people of Israel over and over again is stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And that hard-hearted one is the one that should hit home for the people of Israel. Because what did Pharaoh do over and over again? He hardened his heart. I'm, I'm sure none of us have ever struggled with hardening our heart toward God or others. So we'll just leave that there and move on. All of that to say, the people of Israel were the good guys, but they were not innocent. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not trying to flatten Egypt's sin and Israel's sin and make them equal. Remember what our our catechism teaches us. Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Some things, some sins are worse than others. But just because you haven't done the really bad things doesn't mean that you're innocent, doesn't mean that you're not in need of redemption. And so God needs the people of Israel to make a sacrifice. He needs them to show and place faith in what he is doing. Because you see in the morning when everybody woke up in Egypt, the body count in every house was the same. In every house in Egypt and Goshen, the body count was the same. Why? Because either there was the remains of a dead lamb or there was a dead firstborn. And God provided a way for the people of Israel to have the destroyer pass over them. Either the firstborn is dead or the lamb is dead. God's judging presence is an awesome and fearful thing. God's eye of judgment pierces through all of our facades, all of the ways that we try to prop up our righteousness in front of him. God sees through all of that searching down to our hearts. And so while Israel was not as evil as Egypt by any means, they were still in need of shelter and protection from the justice of God. Beloved, the same is true of us. Without a sacrifice, we stand unsheltered and unprotected in the presence of God. But just like Israel, God has given us a means to have our sins atoned for and for our record to be changed in the face of God's justice. Just like Israel killed the lamb and trusted in God's protection, we have faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus himself, and that provides us our protection and sheltering from any judgment of God. And so in the Passover, we see glimpses of the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. But this passage isn't just about the Passover. It's about more than that. God is doing a, a bogo sale on feasts this day. Buy one, get one free. Buy Passover, get unleavened bread for free because he gives them instructions on a second feast. They're going to eat this feast of Passover before they leave the land of Egypt. They're going to party before they're free. And then they're going to have a second feast that's going to last seven days. And they're only going to eat unleavened bread. They are leaving in a hurry and they're not going to have time to let their bread rise. They're going to eat nothing but unleavened bread. Now, like many of you, uh, during the early days of the pandemic, I had a shocking revelation. This shocking revelation was that the drawer underneath my oven is not a place to store pans. I have only ever known the drawer underneath the oven to be a place where you store pans. I found out that that is actually a proving drawer. And I found this because like many of you in the chaos of the early days of the pandemic, there was something soothing and therapeutic about the Great British Baking Show. And they started using this drawer. And I was like, I have one of those. Why? Why do they use this drawer? They use this drawer so that the bread dough that they've made or whatever other kind of dough can rise so that the leaven can do its work. In fact, that's one of the strangest things about the Great British Baking Show is that the time that their their challenges take are like six hours. If you've never seen the show, it's like MasterChef except the total opposite because instead of being like cutthroat and every moment somebody's doing something, it is very common for people on the Great British Baking Show to take a break and sit down and make a cup of tea and to relax... Have a conversation with somebody because they need time for that bread to leaven. They need time for that yeast to do its work. And while they're waiting, there's not much you can do besides have a cup of tea. The Israelites are going to have no time to let their bread rise. They have no time to engage in our favorite early pandemic hobby of making sourdough. Does anybody have their sourdough starter left from that period? Never mind. Don't raise your hand. No, they're going to eat this meal with their bags packed, their staff in their hand, their belt tight, and their new balance is on because they're going to be walking. They're eating like they're ready to go. They're not going to have time to let their bread rise. Instead of sourdough, they're going to be eating naan or pita. And so the people of Israel get a second feast, not just Passover, but unleavened bread. Now, here's the thing. If you've been a Christian for a while, when I talk about leaven, your mind begins to think of a bunch of things because leaven is something that the Bible talks about a lot. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, Jesus says that the disciples should be weary of the leaven of the Pharisees. He tells another parable where the punchline of the parable is, a little leaven leaveneth up the whole lump. Jesus uses this metaphor of leaven over and over. And then the disciple or the apostles do the same thing. Peter and Paul talk about leaven as a metaphor for sin, about the insidious way that it creeps into our heart. It is small and then it affects everything in our lives. And it's easy for us as Christians, especially Christians who maybe have heard this part of the New Testament over and over, to take that idea and read it back onto the Feast of Unleavened Bread here in Exodus. But I think that's an overreading because this idea that sin is leaven is never once mentioned in the entire Old Testament. That is a completely New Testament idea and a completely New Testament metaphor. And in fact, this Feast of Unleavened Bread isn't about their sin. It's not about what they need before God. That was taken care of in Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about God giving us new life. And this new life being different. Because the people of Israel are not going to be living in homes. The people of Israel are going to be living in tents. They're going to be traveling. They're going to be on the move. And God says, you're not going to have the time to put something in the proving drawer and whip up some tea. Unleavened bread is all you get from here on out. This story, the unleavened bread is about Israel's freedom. It's about God's faithfulness to his promise. It's about the swift and sudden way that he brings about their departure from Egypt. While the Passover pictures redemption from sin, the Feast of Unleavened Bread talks about our freedom. And the same is true for us. The beauty of the redemption and rescue of God is that he doesn't just give us a clean record. He doesn't just say your sins are forgiven. Go figure it out. Rather, what God does is gives us freedom. Sin no longer reigns over us. Yes, we're going to still sin for sure, but we can say no to sin now. We're free from the bondage of sin. And so God institutes these two feasts. He institutes the Passover. He institutes unleavened bread. And then the people of Israel celebrate them. The people of Israel get their lambs on the 10th. They kill them on the 14th. And everything begins to play out just as God said. Everything begins to happen just like God said it would. And as we sort of see this story unfold, the people of Israel aren't just released by Pharaoh, but Pharaoh says, go away, get out. And the people of, Israel, or of Egypt say, get out of here because if you stay around any longer, there's not going to be any of us left. Please go, right? This is the opposite of a Midwest goodbye. Some of you guys have family or friends from the Midwest, you sort of know this idea where you kind of say goodbye at the, you know, in the kind of doorway in the mudroom, and then you stand on the porch and you say goodbye, and then they meander out to your car and kind of hang on the window and say goodbye, and then they got the one hand in the window still saying your goodbyes, and it's like this hour-long process, right? No, 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 This this is a Yankee goodbye. We're done, show's over, go home. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Out. That's what the people of Israel experience. Get out. And not only that, but they're paid uh, reparations of sorts by the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt give them their fancy clothes, give them their gold, give them their silver on their way out. And the Bible says, just like this really succinct, thus the people of Israel plundered the land of Egypt. They're paid finally for their wages. But there's a couple of details left in the story that I want to point out to you. The first is this Passover meal wasn't a one-time thing. If you've been around, you know that. You know that the Bible talks about all the different times that they celebrated Passover. It was supposed to be every year from the 10th to the 14th of Nisan, that was the time that they were going to celebrate Passover. You know that Jesus himself celebrated Passover. We talk about it every Sunday at church as we come to this table. But one of the things that's significant is God says, why? Why the repetition? Why is it that I want you to do this over and over? Every year, I want you to celebrate this. Why? Because your kids are going to grow up and your grandkids are going to grow up. And they're going to ask you, why is it we always have lamb on this day of the year? They're going to ask you, why is it that we do this? And that's the point. God uses the repetition of this feast to retell and retell and retell the story of the people of Israel's rescue and redemption by God. Exodus shows us that God understands how our brains work. Repetition is key to learning. Repetition is key to learning. Repetition is key to le- Yeah, you know. But that's why we do so many of the things that we do here at City Church. Why? Why do, we, why do we come to the Lord's table each week? Because we're telling the story again. Why do we confess our sins together week after week? Because we're doing it again. We're telling the story of the gospel again. Is it repetitive? Yes. Is that by design? Also, yes. Because that's the way that God has set up our faith. He knows that we're in need of frequent reminders. I know that I am in need of a frequent reminder of what God has done for me. I'm tempted to think that my worthiness before God is based on my performance week to week. You might be like that too. And then I come to a table. I come to a table that says it's not about my merit. I come to a worship service that says it's not about what I bring to the table, but rather what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so that repetition is driven home to remind me again and again of the gospel. But there's another detail I want you to see. In verse 38, the people of Israel did not leave Egypt alone. The Bible says that a mixed multitude of people went with Egypt which is strange. They're not the people of Israel. They're not the herds and flocks, but another group of people went with them. As we looked at the plagues last week, God said, I am going to do this to show Israel and Egypt who I am. And it seems that either the Egyptians or some other group of foreigners said, you know what? I'm going to be on that team. I'm going to go with them. I'm going to follow them. Whoever these distinct people were, they weren't Israel. And we can see this and we can see that God's kingdom is always one of surprising inclusion. Finally, I want to point out to you the end game of the Exodus. The end game of the people of Israel leaving Egypt. It was never just a mission to get them out of the land of Egypt. It was never just a, let my people go. That makes for a good movie, makes for a good quote, but that's not the reason. The reason why wasn't simply freedom from slavery. It was so that they could go and worship and serve God. We talked a few weeks ago about this idea that that the words worship and service are tied together, that just like service has the meaning of like a table service of service industry, but also means a worship service where we come to worship God. Those words are used in an interchangeable way. In our language, the same is true in Hebrew. God set the people free from their slavery to Pharaoh So that they might serve the Lord. God redeems and frees the people of Israel, not so that they can go and do whatever they want. It wasn't, hey, you cross the border out of Egypt, knock yourselves out, have a blast, great life, enjoy. No, no, Israel isn't freed so that they have no yoke on them. Israel is given a different yoke. Jesus puts it this way. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beloved, if you've been set free by Jesus, your calling is to serve him not to serve yourself, not to serve some other master. Your calling in being set free is to take on his yoke and follow him. We're not freed from sin so we can do whatever we please. We're called to take on the yoke of Christ, to bind ourselves to him with our whole heart and every action of our being. And we get to do that and we get to be reminded of that by celebrating in advance what God is going to do for us one day. Let's pray.